Grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 15. As we continue our hard sayings, though we are coming near the end with only a handful left, it's been a wonderful study, I know at least for me, to learn week in and week out, whether by my own study or from another's. So I hope that tonight is much of the same. Matthew 15, I'll begin by reading our passage, starting in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Father, help us to clear our minds from distraction. Lord, would our hearts be in tune with what we just sang, that we want to behold our King and worship you this evening. So Lord, tune our hearts uh, into your word and what you would have for us this evening and uh, rightly apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What is faith? (laughs) Everyone is talking about faith. And just to begin this evening, I want to provide a few quotations from some people you may or may not know. First of whom is Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee said, Always be yourself, express yourself, have faith in yourself. Do not go out and look for a successful personality and duplicate it. Mahatma Gandhi said, You must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. Martin Luther King Jr. on the topic said, Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Helen Keller said, Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. Another said this, I believe if you keep your faith, you keep your trust, you keep the right attitude, if you're grateful, you'll see God open up new doors. And that was Joel Osteen. Steve Jobs said, sometimes life hits you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. George Washington said, observe good faith and justice toward all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. And lastly, Muhammad Ali said, it's a lack of faith that makes people afraid of meeting challenges. But I believed in myself. Now, while many of these assertions regarding the topic of faith may be true, I don't think that any of them really answer our question, what is faith? Certainly, none of them attempt to define faith in terms of the Bible and how God has defined faith. Each of them had their own ethereal, subjective understanding of what faith means to them and some conclusions as to how they think that's important. However, as Christians, friends, we ought to be extremely defensive of faith, the topic of faith in general. We ought to fight and claw in order to bring it back into its original context, which was and is defined by God himself. It's in light of this that this evening we're going to consider a beautiful display of faith by an unlikely candidate. 
The subject of this evening's consideration, well, she's not going to have her name written down next to a quote like these individuals did. The person whom we're going to learn from, as we saw, really her name is irrelevant. It's left out altogether. And yet we're going to learn a tremendous amount about what true faith is. Now, before launching into the individual passage here to consider it in detail, I want to show you how Jesus develops the topic of faith through Matthew's gospel and what he's really teaching as he's building this theology of faith. Beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus is contrasting faith with anxiousness. And he says, if God clothes the grass of the fields, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And so here he begins to show that faith is reasonable to place in God because God has complete control over every element in the known world. Moving ahead to Matthew chapter 8, 26, Jesus is asleep in the midst of a storm. He wakes up to the disciples in a frenzy in the middle of this storm. And he calms the storm and he says to them, you men of little faith. And here the teaching point is to have faith in him. Why? Because he was God, and he therefore likewise had control over the natural elements, even the sea. At the end of that passage, they say, man, even the winds and the sea obey this man. One chapter ahead, Matthew 9, verse 2, Jesus heals a paralytic in response to he and his friend's faith. And the teaching point here is that though this man had faith in him for healing, Jesus' ultimate ministry was to forgive sins, which required the same level of faith and trust in him. And really, Matthew chapter 9 is a bunch of miracles that are put together by Matthew as he remembers his time with Jesus. And so again, we get two more healings in Matthew 20 to 22, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, 20 to 22, and 9, 27 to 29, there's two other healing events. He heals a woman's hemorrhage, and he restores a man's sight, both in response to faith. Now, this is furthering the same point from the previous example, that is that he has power over the physical and the spiritual, and really, and this is interesting to me, it seems that his healing is showing an example of how he responds to faith. They were allowed the opportunity to see a physical representation of what faith can do with this man, Jesus. He physically healed them, and he did so perhaps as an illustration of the response to faith in him on a spiritual level. The disciples would need this. All along, the disciples are here for all of these examples, and they're building their theology of faith because one day Jesus would not be there. One day they would have to have faith without sight. And so he's building their understanding of this topic of faith. Again, in Matthew 14, one last consideration, verses 28 to 33 record Jesus walking on water, and then if you remember, he calls Peter out. He calls Peter out on the water. And for a moment, Peter does it. And his faith is strong. And yet, soon he begins to sink. And he says to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now here again, Jesus is showing the power of faith. Peter walked on water. I don't know of any of us that have done that successfully. Although I'm sure some have tried to run as fast as they can. But none of us have walked on water. And Peter did it. And yet... The point of this passage is the need for constancy in faith, the need for persistence in faith. If it's going to be effective, if it's going to have power, it must be ongoing. It can't be here and there once in a while. 
really, I think we could define, in a large part, Jesus' ministry as being built around the topic of faith. Therefore, it's no surprise that as, G- as Matthew recollects his time with Jesus, he's building a robust theology of faith, and he's putting these pieces together so that we get this whole picture. So as we get to chapter 15, that's the context, and now we're going to encounter a, a counterexample of what true faith looks like. Just to continue to build the context before we jump back into our passage, I want to look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, I mentioned this is going to be a counterexample. And unfortunately, friends, potentially more damage has been done by those of the faith than those outside of the faith. And what I mean is there have been countless religious wars from those of some sort of faith. There has been countless lies and hurt by those within a religion of faith. Countless scenarios of hypocrisy and religious snobbery, so much hurt has come from those of faith. And now we're going to see a live example in the Pharisees. The Pharisees approach Jesus and once again are at his throat because his disciples weren't washing their hands according to the ceremonies. Now the following interaction in verses 3 through 9, we're going to read, uh, really defines many religious institutions today. As I read this, I want you, yes, to, to tune into the Pharisees, but I want you to think about religions that we observe today. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now just to pause here for a moment. Here's what was going on, is that in this day, to honor your father and mother encompassed caring for them in their older age. And yet these Pharisees had invented a rule where they would tell their parents, oh, it's Corban, meaning, sorry, all of our money has been given to God. We can't help you, mom and dad. And so Jesus is condemning them, saying, your own rules invalidate the word of God. That's what he says at the end of verse 6. Continuing in 7, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Friends, if you haven't begun to pick up on this, as we've studied the Gospels in this hard sayings, the scribes and Pharisees had invented a religious system that was based on ceremony and achievement for their righteousness. Man-made rituals had been made to worship God and to honor God. They trusted in their ethnic heritage for their salvation. They said, hey, we've got Abraham as our father. We're good to go. And so Jesus rebukes them in these verses. He says they had transgressed the commandment of God in exchange for their man-made religion. They had invalidated the word of God. Three times, in fact, he mentions the word tradition, and referring to the same traditions, he says they are the commandments of men. See, the Pharisees were all external. There was no internal worship with the Pharisees. It was all external. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah perfectly in reference to them, saying that there was lip service, but there was no heart service. 
And really, it's the same idea going back to our very first hard saying, if you were here with us then, in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. It's really no wonder that a few chapters later in the same gospel account, Jesus would call them whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but dead bones on the inside. And sadly, friends, like I mentioned, much, in fact, most of the religious culture of today can be categorized right alongside of the scribes and Pharisees. So, as a consequence of the spread of so much false religion, scribes and Pharisees included, much of Jesus' teaching is combating the false teaching and practices of those who were religious. Therefore, it's really no surprise that after such a stern rebuke, what we see next in verses 10 to 20, and we won't look at it all, but really he's going to use this as a teaching opportunity for those who are gathered. Right? They had been sucked into the same religious system. And so just to summarize this, he has to repeat himself like three times because people don't get it. Peter, one of whom, didn't get it. Uh, I'll skip down to verse 18, though, to summarize it. Jesus says, But the things that, pr- that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Verse 20, These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so essentially Jesus hones in on the heart, which was the heart of the matter. He's saying the external performance and religiousness of these Pharisees has no significance. And he ends this unit by capping it off with washing of hands has no major significance. Now, here's why we consider this, just to kind of zoom us back out big picture. The Pharisees and the scribes here provide a wonderful example of what true faith is not. This is a wonderful example that's going to juxtapose our following passage in verse 21. And so we're going to look again at verses 21 to 28 in a little bit more detail. And although we don't know how much longer after this scenario, uh, this encounter with this Canaanite woman came, we do know this. Both Matthew and Mark place these two events in sequential order. Jesus is interacting with the scribes and Pharisees about their traditions and then his interaction with this Gentile Canaanite woman. Both Matthew and Mark place them in sequential order. So even if it was a few days, as they're recollecting their time with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, these are the two events that stood out the most in their minds and that had the best contrast of what Jesus was trying to communicate. So let's begin with a quick introduction on the setting. Looking at verse 21, it says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. He's coming from Gesenaret, or Gennesaret, sorry, which was located on the Sea of Galilee. You've heard a lot about the Sea of Galilee. And he's now going to leave the Sea of Galilee and the entire Jewish region, and he's going to head northeast outside of Jewish territory to the land of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon was a Gentile region on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, north of most places you're familiar with in the Bible. Jesus is retreating beyond the Jewish borders, probably to get away from the persecution and the pressures of the Pharisees. They've been at him all the time. He wants to get away, to spend some personal time preparing for the cross, and to equip his men to prepare for the cross. So Tyre and Sidon were the place where he chooses to do this. 
in. And yet, Tyre and Sidon, we've heard of them before, have we not? It seems as though there's more than one eager individual that come from these cities. Jesus uses Tyre and Sidon as an example, actually, in Matthew chapter 11, of those who eagerly received the word of God. Though they were a Gentile uh, region, in verse 20 of chapter 11, he says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Cherazim, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So it appears as though there was some receptivity to the things of God, despite having minimal revelation. Now, beginning verse 22, it says a Canaanite woman from that region came out. So Tyre and Sidon were the cities, upon some research, where actually the land of Canaan used to be. So this is a reference to the historical roots of this area. And without a doubt, these people were the descendants of the Canaanites. Now, (laughs) how many of you have read your Old Testament? And I want to ask the question, were the Jewish people of Israel and the Canaanites on good terms? Not exactly. Flipping back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, you can just listen. Uh, (laughs) In the midst of the exodus happening and then the pending conquest into the land, God gives some instructions to Moses, although Moses wouldn't lead this excursion, but Joshua would. And he says this in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 20. He says, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall beseech it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and children and animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do, and here's the key, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you. All the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in these cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. Okay, so he's, he's comparing those cities far away. And now he's talking about the cities that are nearby. He shall not leave anything alive. And he says... In verse 17, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite as the Lord your God has commanded you. And here's why, friends. If this seems harsh, here's why. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would not sin against the Lord your God. Let me summarize that for you. God commanded the people of Israel to completely wipe out the people of Canaan and others. Why? So that their false religious idolatry would not influence the people of Israel and their worship of Yahweh, the one true God. Now, as you continue to read through the Old Testament, Israel was disobedient. They didn't always do as God said. They left some alive, and as a consequence, they were taken away into idolatry. However, you can see from this, the Canaanites were known for their idol worship. They were known for their false worshiping practices. So this is who the Canaanite people are. 
Okay? And a Canaanite woman comes out of the city and comes to Jesus. That's the context here. Now, just again, I want to zoom out and keep the big picture context in mind. Matthew is building the case for faith and the case that Jesus is after the heart. The scribes and Pharisees were a great example of what faith was not. They had trusted in their own religion. And now he's going to interact with a person who is essentially the exact opposite of all that the scribes and Pharisees had made themselves to be. And he's going to do so, friends, just a wonderful passage we're about to get into. He's going to do so to show what true faith looks like. I mean, think about this contrast for a moment. You've got Pharisee men, and here you've got a woman. You've got religious elite, and here you've got false pagan worshipers. You've got Jews, and now you've got a Gentile. And so, as we prepare to dive into this, I just want to prepare you. We're going to be challenged. (laughs) Our faith is going to be challenged tonight. Many people in this world claim to have faith, and I would not doubt that all of us in here claim to have some level or uh, sense of faith. We have some kind of faith. And yet, what we're going to see tonight are essential qualities of true faith. We're going to see essential qualities of true faith, and Jesus calls it great faith. We're going to pull out five of these, and so let's begin in verse 22. It says, A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So the first quality of true faith is that true faith recognizes a need for mercy. True faith recognizes a need for mercy. This woman comes to him and says, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, give me what I don't deserve. That's, that would be pleading for grace. She says, Lord, don't give me what I do deserve. I don't deserve to be responded to by you, but she begs for mercy. And here's what's amazing about these few words. Behind these few words, there's at least four presuppositions that this woman would have had to acknowledge before coming to Jesus and making such a request as this. Number one, she would have to understand, I have a problem. Number two, she would have to understand, I can't solve the problem. Number three, the one who is being asked to solve the problem can solve the problem. And number four, that she does not deserve to have her problem solved. Now, if we work back through this and apply it to her, her problem was that her daughter was possessed by a demon. Secondly, she realized that she could do nothing about this demon possession. Thirdly, she at least believed that Jesus could do something about this demon possession. And fourthly, she recognized that she was not compelling any response from Jesus by her own merits. She did not deserve a response from Jesus. Therefore, she asks for mercy. And friends, this woman encapsulates what true faith looks like by this one simple plea. Being from Tyre and Sidon, she had likely been a worshiper of Astarte and other pagan deities. But as soon as her daughter became possessed, she found out these pagan deities are of no use. They're false, they're fake, they have no true power. Therefore, she comes desperately to the one who has all authority under heaven and earth. And yet, notice, she comes humbly, recognizing her own undeserving state before Jesus and asking for mercy. And friends, I just want to get practical for a moment. Keep in mind why this is recorded. God is showing the case for faith. He's building this idea of faith. Why did God, through Matthew, record this for us to read? Well, I think we can work through these same presuppositions and apply them to our spiritual state. Number one, do we not all have spiritual problems? 
Number two, do we not recognize that we are insufficient in and of ourselves to solve that spiritual problem? Consider again the example of the Pharisees. They wouldn't have begged for mercy. They viewed themselves as sufficient. They viewed themselves as their own Savior, in a sense, by their own deeds. And yet, we are insufficient in and of ourselves to solve our problem. Thirdly, does Jesus not offer grace and mercy to all who will ask for it? He says, come to me, you who are weary. I will give you rest. And lastly, how much more do we not <laughs> deserve to be shown any mercy or grace? We, we earn nothing from God. We have no right, no claim to receive any mercy or grace. Therefore, friends, even in this first sentence, there is immense application for our own lives and our own faith through the example of this Canaanite woman. True faith recognizes a need for mercy. Point number two, though, is that true faith is directed toward Christ. Notice again in this verse, she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. Notice this isn't some random cry to the universe for mercy. It's not a cry to an unknown God. Far from it. If it's to be true saving faith, it must be directed toward an object that has the ability to save. Here's an example. If a man were to jump out of a plane with a parachute, he is demonstrating a measure of faith in the parachute. And most of the time, the parachute opens, and if not, maybe there's a backup parachute. However, if a man were to jump out of an airplane with no parachute and yet cry from the sky as he's falling, I have faith that I will not splat on the ground. Is that sensical? No, that's stupid. That's idiotic. And yet, you see the example here is that faith must be placed in an object that has the ability to save. <coughs> People talk about faith all the time, as we saw in the introduction. Oh, have faith, soldier. Or, oh, I'm a man of faith. And yet the question must be, faith in what? What are you placing your faith in? Are you placing your faith in the world? In the government? In Buddha or the multiverse? Some people have faith that they're going to die and come back as a squirrel or a tree. Yet that doesn't make it true. Therefore, you see, the object of our faith is what is critically important. Faith cannot be this shotgun approach where we just say we believe in everything and hope that it all works out in the end. No, instead, it must be like a sniper. It must be directed appropriately toward Jesus Christ and Him alone. And here's the incredible thing, is that this woman's opening comment displays laser point accuracy as she expresses the object of her faith. She expresses that her faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Look again. She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Listen, friends, this is convicting. I want you to again consider this woman came from an entirely pagan culture. There's limited knowledge of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. There's limited knowledge, if any, of the Old Testament. There's limited knowledge of what a believer would live like. She probably had no heritage of believers no heritage of those who would follow after God maybe she'd heard rumblings of Jesus in the town square maybe she'd heard of this Jesus character I mean I think she probably did because she knows who he is but she had very limited knowledge here I mean you think about the entire ministry of John the Baptist his ministry was to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people who had all the Old Testament, a lot of them had memorized portions of it. They had a heritage of people who followed Yahweh. They had knowledge of God. I mean, John the Baptist was preparing the hearts 
of those people with that level of revelation. And yet this woman has none of that, no encounter with John the Baptist, and yet she places pinpoint accurate faith in Jesus, calling him Lord and the Son of David. What a profound confession. In one small clause, she recognizes Jesus as having power and lordship, and at the same time, she recognizes him as the Messiah, King of Israel. All of her eggs are going into this basket. Her faith has been appropriately directed in Jesus and has been only directed toward Jesus. And we see that as we continue, that she's not going anywhere else. She's there to stay. All of her eggs are going into that basket. She's there to stay. Now, before moving to the next verse, I want to point out one observation. And maybe it's more of a conjecture, but I think Jesus knew this. I think Jesus knew this, and I think that this sets up the rest of this narrative very well. Because if we don't remember that Jesus is good and loving and that he knows people's hearts, he can be easily misunderstood here. When I first read that, were you a little bit shocked at some of his responses? Friends, don't forget, Jesus is good, he's loving, and he knows people's hearts. And what I believe we're going to see here is that Jesus is going to draw out her faith even more, thereby growing it and solidifying it, while at the same time demonstrating to his disciples an example of true and genuine faith. Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Now, Jesus' silence in and of itself communicates a lot. It's been said that sometimes the hardest response to accept is no response at all. And maybe you're familiar with the silent treatment. It can be demoralizing. It can be disheartening. But I don't think Jesus is doing this just to be cruel. I know that Jesus is always teaching. He's always getting to the heart, either of the one whom he's interacting with or those standing by, or a lot of times both. He's very aware of his audience uh, in both settings. And so it is here. Jesus is not going to disappoint. So just hold on a minute if you're a little disappointed that he doesn't respond to her. But what I want to hone in on for a moment here is the disappointing response by the disciples. The disciples come out and blatantly say, Lord, get her out of here. Get this crazy woman away from us. She keeps shouting at us. Look at her begging for mercy. She's causing a scene. And so look at Jesus' response. He says in 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in fact, the beginning of that, I do want to read this. Verse 24 says, But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, with that kind of chunk, now I want to go back and look at some details, and particularly what the disciples respond in light of what Jesus has said. It's more likely that Jesus, that the disciples are saying to Jesus this. They're saying, Lord, Hurry up and heal this woman. Hurry up and give her her request. Cast the demon out so that she can get away from us. And it may seem like that's not that big of a deal, but it actually is. Because if you notice, if you read an ESV or an NIV, verse 24 doesn't start with the word but. A NASB does, and a New King James, I think, does. But how we take the disciples' request to Jesus determines what we do with verse 24. And I'm speaking from a translation standpoint. There is actually a word there that's translated but in the original. However, if the disciples are in fact implying that Jesus should uh, go ahead and send her away, then the but should be there. 
because it's in contrast. Jesus' statement is in contrast to the, to the disciples. If they're not saying that, then the but doesn't need to be here. So let me just give you a little kind of nerdy technical overview of why I think the but should be there. First, the word but is there in the original language. Therefore, I think it should be there. Second, and here's maybe a more practical example, the disciples had never seen Jesus deny anyone's request to heal them. The disciples had been with him, at least not recorded in Scripture. They'd been with him this whole time, and any time there's a request, Jesus is healing people, he's casting out demons, he's curing leprosy and blindness. He's constantly doing this, so it would make sense that, he's, that they're saying, Lord, hurry up and do your thing and get her out of here because she's annoying. Right? I'm not condoning the disciples' behavior at all. They viewed her as a nuisance, but I do believe that's what they're saying. Further, they see the tenacity of this woman coming at them, and they're thinking, oh boy, okay, just take care of this one and get her out of here. And I think that because of this, do you think the disciples were shy to tell someone to leave away from Jesus? No, in fact, all you got to do is read the Gospels. They're constantly shooing people away from Jesus, trying to protect Jesus, casting people away they shouldn't be casting away, and Jesus is saying, bring them back. And so I don't think the disciples were at all shy to have commanded this woman to leave. That's not the issue. If so, they would have just commanded her themselves. And yet, it seems as though what they're saying in verse 23 is, Lord, send her away by means of casting out this demon because she keeps shouting at us. Now, if that is the case, then the but in verse 24 should be there. And here's why this is important. Because this begins to set up an interesting showdown. I'm going to read verse 24 again. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. <laughs> so, the woman is asked for her daughter to be healed of a demon. The disciples have likely agreed with that and said, Jesus, hurry up and do this. And Jesus now opposes both of them. He's opposing the woman's request no matter how you take this. And I believe he's also contrasting the disciples' request. And as we continue through the story, what unfolds is that the Lord is going to give this woman a chance to show her faith. He could have just healed that demon right there. He could have cast it out right there. You know what? At the end, he's going to do that. But he's got some teaching to do first. He's going to demonstrate to his own guys through this woman that while he did come to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel first, that ultimately all who would exercise true faith in him would be saved. As Romans 1.16 says, the gospel, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation uh, to all who will believe to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so her response to the Lord's continues to show this kind of genuine faith that needs to be there from either Jews or Gentiles. Look at verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And here we see the third aspect of true faith, which is that true faith is desperate. She's overcome the silent treatment, and now as in an, act, <laughs> an act of true desperation, she bows down on her knees. She's simplified her request, and she says simply, Lord, Help me. Help me, Lord. She is desperate. Three simple words. Friends, I think there's a teaching point here. It's that God is not always after some articulate prayer. He's not always after the most elaborate expression of theology when we come to him. Sometimes God just wants us to be desperate before him. He wants us to be dependent on him. 
In fact, Matthew 13, 44 records an example of a man who encountered a pearl of great price. And upon, upon finding that pearl, he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy the field, and he does so with joy. And yet the disciples now are seeing a real-life example played out right before them, again, from an unlikely candidate. In this plea to the Lord, now the woman continues to display an unshakable faith in him. And yet following her response, Jesus is not done. He's going to place one more barrier up for this woman to overcome before granting her request. Look at verse 26. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, it makes sense if you think about it that Jesus would do it this way. With so much confusion about what true faith is and the contrast that they had seen and grown up in with the Pharisees, he wanted to show the full character of this woman's faith. Now, lest we be tempted to think that she's just a guinea pig for the sake of the disciples, I believe Jesus is is intently interested in galvanizing her faith as well. He wants to bring her along in this process. And yet, without a doubt, this is a teaching example to his guys as well. Now, in order to do this, he's placing three barriers in front of her to overcome. First, he responds with silence to her initial request. Second, he says he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Following this, she falls down onto her face before him and begs for mercy again. And now thirdly, paralleling his second one, Jesus says it's not good to throw children's bread to the dogs. Interesting note, (laughs) if you remember from Deontay's teaching in, in Matthew 7, dogs were not seen in the most positive light in this day and age. You may recall his teaching that they were uh, really scum, They were mangy. They were street dogs. And yet, here's an interesting nugget here. I believe for a very precise reason, Jesus actually uses a different term here. And this is absolutely fascinating as the story develops. The term he uses for dog is kynarion, which maybe sounds familiar to canine from today's language. Now, rather than referring to this despicable street dog, a kynarion was a small house dog. So let's stop and insert this back into the story. The scene is not really the same as it was with Lazarus. Lazarus was laying out there and there's scraps thrown and they all fight over him, dogs and him fighting over the scraps. The dogs are licking his sores. Not the same scene. Now what we have is the Lord saying, it's not good to take the children's bread while they're at the table and to give it to the dogs so that the children don't eat it. Now, though this is still a huge hurdle to overcome, he did just call her a dog, It's a very interesting point that's going to begin to play in with major significance. One more verse, and then we're going to look at some some implications. Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And I just got to say, here's the fourth aspect of true faith. True faith is persistent. Man, this woman is relentless. As this story unfolds, this fourth positive quality of faith is just absolute persistence and relentlessness. She's now scaled this third barrier. If we're talking in a military obstacle terms, right? You're at a military obstacle course, and the first hurdle is, you know, something that you can kind of jump over, and then you've got this wall to climb over. This third wall is like a towering wall, and yet this woman scales this wall, as we'll see, and overcomes it by saying, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs. 
She fully understands Jesus' analogy regarding the dogs, and yet she embraces it, she believes it, and she catches a nuance within the Lord's illustration that allows her to make one final plea to him for mercy. Now, to help us understand Jesus' seemingly hard statement, we need to understand a little bit of the culture as we begin to interact with this uh, phrase, dogs. How do we understand that our Lord and Savior called this woman a dog? Well, Jews viewed non-Jews as lower class. You remember Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? It was completely inappropriate in the disciples' view, number one, because she was a woman, and number two, because she was a Samaritan. Two strikes. Um, And yet, Jesus ministers to her. So, the Jews viewed non-Jews as lower class, and really, they would call them dogs. In fact, in in a little bit later time, a few decades later, they would call Christians dogs as well. It was a derogatory term uh, to put another class of society down. Now, I I do want to say this. (laughs) It wasn't altogether wrong to view themselves this way. Yes, prejudice was wrong, but they were recognizing that they were the chosen nation of Israel, they worshipped the one true God, and all the other nations, by and large, worshipped false pagan deities. They were wicked. These were wicked cultures that these other nations were coming from. So it's not all wrong. Likewise, they understood, and it's true, that Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7, Jesus uses the same language, in fact, as he sends out the disciples on their first missionary journey right after calling them to himself. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, and he says this, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is absolutely right on as he says, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet, friends, here's the incredible truth. It was always in the plan to include Gentiles in salvation. Beginning way back, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. The promised Messiah would extend to all nations. And yet, again, we're just kind of walking this tightrope here. Jesus would come through the Jews. He would come as a Jew. He would come for the deliverance of the Jews first. Again, Romans 1 16, to the Jew first and the Gentile. Israel has and always will be God's chosen nation, but not at the exclusion of salvation of the Gentiles as well. So trying to understand the first century Jews' perspective, they view themselves as always, being the, always having been the people of God and that the rest of these nations are wicked and immersed in pagan worship, which was true. And so salvation for Gentiles was a very hard truth for them to take in, especially for Peter and the gang. And yet it's this very fact that begins to shed light on why Jesus is dragging this woman along through so many steps of showing her faith. If she is going to serve as an example to his apostles, he needed to show that without a doubt, her faith is true through and through. And here we get back to the finer points now. Here's the fascinating detail that comes out in Jesus' response. Jesus knew the other term for dog, okay? He's the one that used it. He used it in Matthew 7. He used it in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. 
And yet, he uses this term for house dog. And in so doing, it seems as though he is leading her down the right path in his response in verse 26 when he said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the house dogs. Jesus' analogy with the dog in the house is communicating that though there is a distinction between Jew and Gentile that must be recognized, there is still a place in the house for this dear Gentile woman and anyone who would likewise place faith in him. This house is intended for the Jews, but Gentiles can have a place in the house too if they will place faith with humility like this woman did. Notice that the woman doesn't object to his analogy. The woman has no objections. Verse 27 again, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's not saying, yeah, Lord, take the the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. She's saying, I just want some of the leftovers. She agrees with his analogy and begs for crumbs from the fullness of his grace. She begs for mercy from the head of the house, the one who delivers and dispenses bread as he pleases. Not at the exclusion of feeding Israel or those at the table, but out of the abundance of his provision. And friends, before we move to the final point, I want to stop for an implication here. We have a tendency to be arrogant. Now, who do I mean when I say we? I'm not talking about Americans. I'm not talking about 21st century Christians. I'm talking bigger, Gentiles. We as Gentiles are so arrogant. This attitude by a Gentile woman begging for crumbs at the table is absent in today's Christianity. It's absent if you survey the scene of the church today. And it's frightening to see the Gentile arrogance. Gentiles have replaced themselves as those who sit at the table. Gentiles have made Jesus into a Gentile-centric Jesus. They now have a Gentile-centric view of the table and its offer. And in fact, the majority of the church today does not have the perspective of this woman towards the cross, towards Scripture, towards God, and toward Jesus. Instead, we have... Again, replaced ourselves as those who dine at the table and the Jews as the dogs who may or may not get some scraps that fall off. Suddenly, the Gentile church not only has a place beside Israel, but has replaced Israel. And the concerning thing about this is that this passage, along with several others, offer a perspective for Gentiles that is just the opposite. Now, lest someone say that this is just Matthew's development in a transition from a Jewish gospel to a Gentile gospel, let's go to Paul. I want to show you two examples from Paul decades later. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see a plea for humility for the Gentiles. Paul's writing to Gentiles and he's asking for humility from them. Why? Because they had begun to do the same thing. They were getting born again. They had the Spirit of God living in them. As promised, they were being grafted into the new covenant promises, which, by the way, were intended for Israel in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And yet, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." Friends, this is the exact same point. Paul is commending them through the Holy Spirit to have humility regarding their salvation. 
Romans chapter 11 teaches the same exact truth in discussing the new covenant reality that the Gentiles have been grafted in among the salvation belonging to the Jews. And he says this in Romans 11, referring to the Jews as the natural branches. He says, If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. In other words, it's not the Gentiles who support Israel's salvation, but the exact opposite. Israel supports our salvation, which by the way, unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile. So that's what we're talking about here. All of our salvation comes from the original promises and covenants with Israel. And yet he continues, you will say then, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited. In other words, do not be arrogant, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Again, in this analogy, Israel are the natural branches and Gentiles are the wild olive branches. And the warning that's being issued is the same. Don't be arrogant toward Israel. Returning to Matthew 15, the same truth is being illustrated, but by way of example. Jesus was giving this woman every opportunity to walk away and leave him for good. He puts up three barriers And yet in this process, he allows her to demonstrate the humility that we Gentiles ought to have regarding our salvation. It's easy for us to forget this because there's not a lot of Jews being saved today. And most Christians are Gentiles. And yet there is a warning for us here that we ought to view our salvation with humility. And so her persistence and humility displayed the kind of faith necessary for true salvation. Now, as a final consideration of what true faith is, number five is that true faith is rewarded. True faith is rewarded, and we see that in verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great and shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. At this point, can you begin to understand why Jesus called her faith great? She had, in a sense, been through the ringer. Her daughter's demon-possessed. She finds out her false gods have no hope of healing her. She finds out about this Jesus character and gets to him, and now he responds in silence and with comments that he's not here to save her, and then another comment that he's not here to save her. You can begin to relate with this woman. And so, after it's all said and done, Jesus says, your faith is great. And in fact, in the original here, there is an emotion behind this comment to this woman. It would have been read something like this. Oh, woman, your faith is great. Jesus was saying this with his heart. He meant it. He was moved by this woman. And so immediately he heals her. Friends, here's the incredible thing as we kind of wind down. Jesus had power over the elements And he had power over the spiritual. You notice he doesn't say an exorcism here. He doesn't do some spell with his hands. He just wills it and the demon is gone. And if you've ever, hopefully you've never, but if you can imagine being in front of a person who's possessed by a demon, you realize I have no power. There's nothing I can do. I cannot take this person to the hospital, cut open their chest and remove the demon. And yet this man This man, Jesus, had power over all of the elements and over all of the spiritual as well. 
Everything physical, everything spiritual, Jesus had authority over. And here's the astounding reality that we see present in verse 28 and in this passage is that Jesus responds to faith. Jesus responds to simple, childlike faith. Her saying, Lord, help me. Just as he responds to the faith of those in the preceding chapters who would come to him with a physical infirmity and we can actually see the result of the faith changed, so he responds to the faith of an individual who comes to him for salvation, who comes to him as their Lord and Savior. There is something that happens there. Yes, it's in the spiritual realm, not in the physical, but Jesus equally demonstrates throughout his ministry that he has complete power and authority over both. He possesses power over physical and spiritual. And as we close, I just got to ask, do we have this kind of faith? Do we have the kind of faith that this Gentile Canaanite woman had with far less information and revelation than we have? Do we recognize our need for mercy? Do we direct our faith fully and solely toward Christ? Do we come to him desperate with no other possible options? And do we come to him persistently as this woman did? If we do, we can be sure our faith will be rewarded. There will be a reward. This woman's daughter was healed. And in the same way, the Christian who seeks after God will be rewarded with eternal life. In closing, I want to read one passage and then we'll pray. 1 Peter is perhaps one of the most encouraging passages in all the Bible to me for my own heart. 1 Peter discusses the topic of faith, and I want you to tune in to that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Let's bow together. As we close, I want us to reflect on this topic of faith. As we're gathered tonight in the midst of a busy life and a busy schedule, we see this woman's single focus on faith in Christ, her desperate persistence toward Him. And as we're bowing our heads, preparing to pray. It's only fitting that we examine our own hearts and ask, Lord, do we have this kind of faith? And maybe our plea to God tonight is going to be similar to that which we see from a man in Scripture when he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know as I studied this passage personally, it was challenging to see this woman's faith and my lack of it at times. 
in these five areas. Lord, we come before you broken. We do come before you humble, Lord. We recognize we have no right or claim to anything from you. Lord, may this be the sole focus of our minds and our hearts right now. That as we have heard from your word, now it's time to respond to it. Lord, may your spirit rightly apply the truth that we've seen tonight in our hearts. And God, would you cause us all to respond in faith. Lord, wherever we're at in our walks with you, our faith can grow. We believe, but help our unbelief. Even as Peter, at the end of his life, with Christ present here on earth, struggled to say, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. God, in the same way, we cry out to you and and pray for your help, God. We want to have this kind of faith. And Lord, we want to be humble. So give us the right attitude, Lord. Give us the right perspective. And Lord, for those who have not placed saving faith in you, we pray that they would do so tonight, Lord, that they would not leave uh, without considering their eternal state with you as the king of the universe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.